Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And it's Shocktober! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I'm a mummy! <laughs> I don't see it's alive. <laughs> there you go. Wah! That was a little bit of a throwback to Larry Cohen's It's Alive. <laughs> and today we're talking about Full Moon Productions, Features. They've gone under many names. You know, there are those who say that you're either a Stones person or a Beatles person mm. or uh, you were, you're a, a Union or a Confederate in yes. the Civil War or, or whatever it may be. But I would propose that if you're interested in 1980s and 1990s direct-to-video genre fair. You're either a Full Moon Entertainment guy or a Roger Corman's New World slash Concord New Horizons Wait, you guy. can only pick one? What I'm leaning into is I was always very fascinated by Roger Corman mm-hmm. growing up. I was never interested in Charles Band and Full Moon Entertainment. What was your relationship to Charles Band? When I was a kid and I would go to the video store, I would look in the horror section, which I would always run to first off. I was too scared of the horror section. This horror section just captured my imagination. All these VHS tapes that I couldn't rent, and it felt like it went to the ceiling and was like wrapped around. And I would just look at these tapes that would say stuff like, Puppet Master 3 or Subspecies 2 and I would be like what is this these painted covers that would promise so much these middle chapters in movies that I had no idea what went around it it felt like anything could happen and at this point in time as well Full Moon and these other horror companies would have these standees Mm -hmm. like these big cardboard cutouts I specifically remember Night of the Demon which is not a Full Moon film but kind of falls within that purview where it was like uh, the demon woman holding a big sucker in her hand that cover terrified me when I was a kid because you're like what is this Mm -hmm. and it was only later on that I actually started watching Full Moon films and so Full Moon is a company that existed from the 80s onward and they made a bunch of horror science fiction and fantasy films and when I first started watching them I was like well these are boring Like, these are not delivering what I want from this kind of movie. And it just kind of went away for a while. I just kind of dismissed them early on in my cinephilia, being like, okay, maybe they were good when they came out on VHS, but, you know, I've moved past that. And then later on, when I started learning more about them, I just kind of got fascinated by them. I still didn't think they were great movies, but this idea of a company in the 80s that, like, they built a fan base. They, like, that's how they survived. In this era where their movies went only direct to video, they had a fan club. They had stuff you would get every month if you ordered it out. They had franchises that spanned nine, ten movies because people just liked these characters. You know, that's interesting because I was always more fascinated by Roger Corman Mm -hmm. because not only did he make a number of good to great movies, but, of course, he got fathered all those other filmmakers, Scorsese, Coppola, Bogdanovich, mm-hmm. what have you. So it seemed like there were more good movies that came out of his empire. But also, there was never anybody who was a fan of Concord New Horizons. No, you would never have like a super fan of Concord New Horizon. I'm in the fan club. There was no fan club because that's not what it was about. And like Corman was very adept at just adapting to whatever change happened in the marketplace. No theatrical? Well, let's go straight to video. Let's do a bunch of like stripper movies for video. Oh, video markets dried up. Uh, let's go for the sci-fi channel. Charlie Band, the guy who ran Full Moon and ran the previous company, Empire Entertainment, like, he has in his mind what he likes, and he just tries to follow that path, whether it sells or not. Now, Charlie Band has had such a massive career that I'm going to have to blow through it really fast that like his father was Albert Band who worked very closely was John Huston was actually the assistant director on The Red Badge of Courage and I believe he has a co-writer credit on that film Albert Band also directed films like Zoltan The Hound of Dracula and Spaghetti Western films his son Charlie Band got into the business started in the way that most people do making horror films and pornography before finally he made a company called Empire Entertainment where he had a deal with another big major studio and they made theatrical films. So they made films like Trancers, which actually did go into theaters, or films like uh, Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin, which was released in 3D, or Parasite, which was released in 3D. This company, which lasted a while, eventually kind of crumbled. The funding disappeared. Supposedly, Charlie Band and the company was $29 million in debt, but they were still able to start another company, Full Moon. And Full Moon was the second attempt of getting stuff off the ground. But in this particular case... 
it was going to start as a direct-to-video company. Now, when Charlie Band talks about Full Moon, he says stuff like, well, we wanted to eventually get to theatrical movies. While the direct-to-video market was something new and something that we could exploit, we didn't always want to be just like stuff that you would find on the video shelves. We wanted to move to something else. And early on, it seemed like this was something that was going to happen because they had a deal with Paramount, who was funding all their movies, so their films were slick and that they could hit the beats while still being cheap enough that they could make them and they can go direct to video. And right off the bat, they had pretty much one of their biggest hits, which was 1989's Puppet Master. Now, Puppet Master is the brand that I think is the most associated with Full Moon. They have something like eight sequels. Uh, yeah. Still going like today. 13 sequels okay, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, they have a lot. They had one that just came out this year where the uh, the puppets had become uh, uh, triggerers of the libs. Yeah, so um, <laughs> what's interesting about that remake that recently came out, Puppet Master The Littlest Reich, is that it's not technically a Full Moon film. Charlie Band made a deal with a company where he would be allowed to continue to make Puppet Master films and they can make parallel Puppet Master films and do whatever they want with it, wow. which I've never heard before. But, you know, if it works for them, sure, why not? So I watched Puppet Master this week for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. Didn't like it. I approach it every time that I watch it, a handful of times. I always go in going, this is the boring one. This is the one that, you know, even the director, David Schmoller, who is most famous for making Tourist Trap for Empire Entertainment. And also uh, Crawl Space with Klaus Kinski. Um says that, like, this is a movie that he didn't want to make, he had no interest in, he rewrote the script, and he was kind of kicked out as it was being released and it got popular, so that even creates more distaste for the film for him. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that, like, this is the first one, it's definitely not the best one, but at the same time, you can see why it got popular, which is all these little doll things that kill people. The plot is you got this puppet master uh, who who controls all the puppets, and he dies, he puts a gun in his head and Mm -hmm. shoots himself. Andre Toulon. Um, and then, you know, at the at the memorial, uh, everybody's in the hotel, mm-hmm. you know, hoping to hoping to get a piece of that puppet fortune, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but but the puppets are still alive and the puppets are stalking the hotel, killing everybody one by one in comical ways. I liked the puppets. Yep. Uh, and their blade, a guy that looks like Klaus Kinski, and that's not an accident. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who has blades in his eyes and blades for hands. David Schmoller had a very bad experience working with Klaus Kinski, as did most people who worked with him. He even made a little documentary called, uh, I think it's Please Kill Mr. Kinski. That's right. Where he and his producer considered for a moment murdering Klaus Kinski and collecting the insurance <laughs> on the picture. Uh, there's also the puppet Leech Woman. Yeah. Uh, She's the sexy puppet. Yeah, yeah. who spits out leeches uh, and who does almost nothing in the other movies because she really only has one thing. Uh, Is it Pinhead? I believe it is because it's a guy with a tiny little head Mm -hmm. and giant hands which are just a puppeteer putting his hands through them so he can strangle people. Mm -hmm. And then you also have a guy with a drill in his head. Mm -hmm. Oh man, I'm losing my puppet master uh, creds here because I can't remember all their names. God, I saw it like two days ago and I'm already forgetting (laughs) too. But these and there's some fun stop motion effects as well. Yeah. Not not enough stop motion. No. So these stop motion effects were done by a guy named David Allen who would go on to direct the second Puppet Master film. He was the full moon go-to stop motion guy. Probably in the late 80s and 90s, he was probably the most prolific uh, stop motion animator, also the most particular. And so the reason there's not that many is that like he would spend ages on stop motion uh, scenes and it cost a lot of money even for a guy working in this indie scene. So like that's why there's only a little bit of stop motion. But the puppets themselves are, you know, fun designs Mm -hmm. and they kill people in interesting ways. The scenes that don't have puppets in them are very boring and not there's no suspense and it's not funny they're just a bunch of jerks walking around this big mansion waiting to be killed it doesn't it doesn't build Mm. or anything but what you do get at the end of this movie is the first i think instance of why people kind of like the puppets which is like they care for their own where one of the puppets gets beat up at one point by their master and they turn on the master and like kill him because what charlie band figured out is that He's not going to make a movie where puppets just kill people. He's going to make a movie where puppets are good guys and kill bad guys. Because that's how the series ended up evolving, where Puppet Master 2, it was then killing people again, in this case, psychics. And then Puppet Master 3, which is the best one, is a period piece directed by um, important cinema club favorite, David Dakota, (laughs) where it's the origin story uh, during World War II, where the Puppet Master, Andre Toulon, created all these puppets to kill Nazis. And that's essentially what the series continued 
it to be, which is the puppets are good guys and they just kill bad people that get involved in their world. But like any of the Full Moon series, it was a law of diminishing returns where money kept being cut away and budgets shrank. So the movies only got more and more disappointing. But we'll get into that later because I know the other film that you watch was Castle Freak. Which I actually really liked. Yeah, so Castle Freak is another one of those famous Full Moon films and it's directed by Stuart Gordon, who is... Without a doubt, the best director that Full Moon and Empire Pictures worked with. Best known for Reanimator. Which was an Empire Pictures film uh, from Charlie Band's company again. Mm. And so Castle Freak is essentially like an internet joke at this point, it's, thanks it's to the, Flophouse. It's the one where the guy rips his own ding-dong off. Yes, <laughs> which he does not do in the film. But it's, <laughs> He doesn't have a ding-dong. No, that's, that's right. Thing. It ha- was previously ripped off off-screen. So the story behind this movie was that, or supposedly the story behind it is that Stuart Gordon was in Charles Band's office and they had a poster for Castle Freak. Because like Corman, that's how Charlie Band would make movies. They'd paint a poster, yeah. have a cool title, pre-sell it so they would get the money to make it, and then go out and make it. And Stuart Gordon said, can I make that movie? And Charles Band said, as long as it has a castle and a freak in it, you can do whatever you want. And uh, Charlie Band owned a castle that a lot of the movies shot in, and that's where they shot Castle Freak. The movie stars Jeffrey Combs in sort of a Shining-like story. He plays an alcoholic family man who previously, one of his children was killed in a car accident. Because of his drunk driving. Him and his wife and their surviving child. Played by Barbara Crampton, uh, his wife, the uh, woman that uh, head goes down on in Reanimator. <laughs> uh, but they... You know, they go to the uh, to the castle and they're trying to repair their marriage. Uh, but, oh, there's a castle freak in there. The castle freak, while I liked him, mm-hmm. was in some ways the least interesting part of the movie. Most of the movie is this shining-like story mm-hmm. of this, this... Jeffrey Combs. Jeffrey Combs. Great actor. Just falling apart. And Jeffrey Combs commits so hard to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could call him guilty of overacting, but I don't think so. Well, I, he's very charismatic. It's what Jeffrey Combs does like yeah. in every role, which is he like plays it to the hilt. So if you have a Jeffrey Combs-like role in your film, he'll do perfect at it. There's something kind of unstable about him. Mm-hmm. Like, he really does feel like a very off-kilter presence. And we should point out that this is not a comedic film either. No. Like, this is very serious. And I think that that's something that Charlie Band, as a producer, always struggled with, which was this idea of, like, well, people like horror and they like fantasy and they like action, but they like it goofy as well. Mm-hmm. And that when you push it too far into the goofy territory, it's tougher to take seriously. So a film like Castle Vig is great, because it has the goofy title. It has on the poster the image of the monster, which the film takes great pains in hiding until the climax. (laughs) And so it's like a weird mixture of like, they're selling you all the sizzle, but the film actually has a steak inside of it. (laughs) And so like uh, Will was saying, it works as a drama. Like it's very satisfying, well shot, stylish. I'm sad that Jeffrey Combs never became a bigger star. I, I am as well. He's a very charismatic presence. He's he, there's, there's a bit of Nicolas Cage to him, I think. <laughs> if you look at his early career, Jeffrey Combs like only worked in Stuart Gordon or Stuart Gordon adjacent movies, mm-hmm. which is like baffling to me, which I'm like, wouldn't other people want to cast him in horror roles? Like he appears for, I don't know, 10 minutes in Fred Olin Ray's um, Cyclone. Mm-hmm. But like he didn't have any like big acting roles, which... I wondered, like, is it because he was difficult or some other reason for that? But, like, I couldn't find any indication of that. Yeah, I don't know. He's a very particular talent. He's Mm -hmm. a a big presence. Yeah, but, like, in direct-to-video horror films, that'd be perfect. Like, that's exactly what you want. Someone charismatic like that. direct-to-video horror films are very boring. Mm -hmm. So Castle Freak, like, for a while was considered, like, a lesser full moon film because people like the big, goofy stuff. And there was a whole bunch of movies that were uh, released around that time, like Subspecies, which has, like, four entries and one spinoff. But Castle Freak also signals an end to the full moon has money period of their uh, <laughs> business, where suddenly Paramount pulled out and Charlie Ban was in a situation where they got producers and investors called Kushner and Locke who were, like, the most penny-pinching, like, as long as you have a 70-minute movie, that's all we care about. Like, why would you need a special effect when you can just have someone do something more simply? So for, like, a stretch there, Full Moon, they made a lot of movies, and it's probably, like, where people know a lot of their films from, but they're very cheap movies. And I know that you didn't watch any from this period, Will. Uh, You jumped even further after that. But, like... 
films that they made uh, at that period, a lot of them fell under weird sub-labels. So, like, Charlie Band loves this idea of comic books and, like, connected worlds. When he first started Full Moon, he talked about how, like, oh, I want it to be, like, Marvel Comics, where you can have, like... Uh, a trancer character appear in a demonic toys movie. Well, who can forget the hit film Doll Man versus, versus demonic, demonic toys? <laughs> and like that's what he wanted, and he never quite got there. There's really weird connections, like uh, in Doll Man versus Demonic Toys, a character from the movie Bad Channels shows up, which is like Bad Channels, not a very uh, fondly remembered film. It's it's an okay '50s alien invasion film directed by Ted Nicolo. But, like, it's not one that you're like, ah, I can't wait to see these characters again. So it's that weird, like, they want to cross-pollinate, but they don't know how to, like, center it. But in this Kushner Lock era, we also got films like Doll Man, which I know that you watched. I did watch Doll Man, directed by visionary filmmaker Albert Pyun, Mm -hmm. who made Captain America. Not (laughs) not the Captain America you've seen lately. But the good ones he made were Sword and the Sorcerer, Nemesis. Alien from L.A. Alien from L.A., (laughs) Mystery Science Theater 2000 favorite. I love Albert Pyun. Uh, I like Albert Pyun. I love yeah. Albert Pyun. He's like one of those like renegade filmmakers who just worked for everyone. Uh, he actually made a picture for Empire Pictures called um, Vicious Lips, which is about an intergalactic rock band that goes around and like stuff happens. It is a giant mess. And it's shocking that Charlie Band would hire Albert Pyun again to make two movies for him. But he did. I've seen enough Albert Pyun movies now that I've started to recognize like the authorial signatures. Like <laughs> if there's an action scene at kind of like an abandoned warehouse in a desert yep like that you know like cyborg for instance there's there's your albert pewn image but this movie is about like a a, a space warrior kind of a han solo type Mm. from from another planet who crash lands on earth and it turns out on earth he's only like four inches tall yeah that's the idea and 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 we should get into the fact that like charlie band and full moon love little things like puppets dolls toys i don't know if it's like it's just Charlie Band thing. Like he just loves this or it's the idea that they can market it as action figures. Yeah. Yeah, probably. And is he also thinking about the expanded universe? Like you get all of these little things together at some point. And maybe it's easier to make a puppet than a costume, but I don't know about yeah. that. Puppets are really tough to do as well. But like doll man is essentially dirty Harry with a little person. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much all it is. And he fights a punk played by Jackie Earl Haley <laughs> between him being a child star and him being an older character actor. Yeah. And Jackie, Earl Haley, very big in this film. <laughs> That's right. But, and I think Doll Man has some really fun stuff at the beginning and end and a nothing middle, which I is totally agree. Is kind of uh, indicative of a lot of the lesser full moon films where you watch them and you go, do you know what people want with this picture or like this genre? So Doll Man opens on this other planet and there mm-hmm. are some great matte paintings and some fun lighting and everything. It's like this cool other planet world. And the minute they you know, find themselves on Earth. My heart sank. It's like, oh, oh no. <laughs> and like, Albert Pugh, and I've read some interviews with him, and he freely admits that he went into Dollman thinking, I can just wing this. I don't have to storyboard it. I don't have to do anything. And woo-wee, can you tell watching the movie? The special effects are horrible because... Mm-hmm. You know, there is no effort made to make the doll man look like he's only four inches. They just shoot Tim Thomerson, like, standing next to a bunch of life-sized rocks. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they'll, they'll never have him in the same shot as anyone else. Mm. Um, or if they do, it'll be, like, forced perspective or something like that. Yeah. It just doesn't work. <laughs> it's like you're standing like... next to life-sized rocks. <laughs> even, like, in a cartoony way, we're like, oh, wow, that's fake. But I kind of like it because it was inventive. There's not really any of that. Yeah. But, I mean... Uh, watching it, I did realize how much better the production values are of it than of most DTV stuff happening today. Well, know. I mean, the reason DTV movies now are so bad are the same reason that, like, full moon films now are bad. And we'll get into this a little bit later. And by bad, I mean very cheap. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of, like, well, we need content. Will audiences accept this level of money spent on it will they pay for it will they come back Mm -hmm. and if they do then we can lower the money just a little bit more (laughs) like some of the films made in this kushner lock era of full moon films were shot in four to five days and this falls a lot i feel like at the feet of our main man david dakota who said stuff like i can make a movie in four days Just give me, like, the stock. I'll just go out and make it. And once you find that you can make a movie in four days, why don't you make 
all movie in four days. Mm-hmm. So it's a real law of diminishing returns as you go on. And there's an amazing book that like almost all this history I got from called It Came From the Video Isle, Inside Charles Band, Full Moon Entertainment by David J. William S. Wilson and Torsten Dewey. And they interview almost everyone involved with these Full Moon productions. And no one really goes, we just wanted to make something to make money. Everybody has this idea of like, well, we wanted to make something good. But the issue was Charlie Band would go up to them and go, oh, we need the script in five days because we're shooting and we need to shoot it in four days and it needs to be out at this point because we need to hit this quarterly date where all this pressure around it, like it was just like almost impossible to deliver a real movie out of these circumstances. I mean, I'm not sure what circumstances you could make a good movie in anymore because people aren't buying DVDs and videos anymore. Mm -hmm. um, And that's where they made their revenue and everything's shifting to online uh, and there's not enough money to be made there. Yeah, you know? and like, so how do you how do you make a good movie? Charlie Band, like a lot of people hate him because they think he's a ripoff artist because he's always selling you this product and really this brand, this full moon brand. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you read interviews with him, and it's obviously he's a guy that's passionate about what he's doing. He likes specific things, like he loved Doctor Strange so much. He got friggin' Jack Kirby, like one of the best artists of all time, to do production art of a strange like character. And then he made that movie years and years later, uh, Dr. Mordred, starring Jeffrey Combs as a Doctor Strange character. I just love the idea of like someone would like, I need to make this movie and I'm going to do it. Whether the market needs it or not, (laughs) this is what I want to make. And like Charlie Band, from every indication of everybody that speaks uh, about him, he was a great personable businessman. He would go to every video store and sell them on Full Moon products. He wanted them to feel like they were in a family making these movies together and like that they were all in it not just because he needs to make money but because he actually likes doing this stuff so this is why you like charles band yes the the other people who are in the full moon cult Mm. do they like him for the same reason i don't know i don't know if it's just because like they grew up on films like puppet master and subspecies and there's that nostalgia there that like these stories are continuing to exist in a way that like properties it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Like, if you like He-Man, the people who started He-Man aren't still making He-Man, and they feel there's a betrayal there. They're like, mm-hmm. ah, I wasn't like when I was a kid. Charlie Band has stuck with these properties since the 80s. So, like, that's a ridiculously long time. The last Puppet Master film released by Full Moon, which came out, like, a year ago, was directed by Charlie Band. Huh. So, like, there's obviously a passion there from him, I feel, that, like... He could go and do something else. He would have probably been like a good huckster, like for insurance or any other properties. But like, I read an interview where someone said that they even asked Charlie Band, like, why don't you just go work for another company? Like, you can just do, you know, your film stuff, but for someone else. And Charlie Band honestly said, I I don't want to work for somebody else. Like, I want to do this myself. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's self-destructive, obviously, because like Empire fell to pieces, Full Moon eventually fell to pieces. And... At the, you could say that, like, well, it's not 100% Charlie Band's fault because, you know, the marketplace collapses. Like, these things aren't sustainable. Like, Paramount pulls out, so he can't make those movies. So he finds another guy who tries to do them at the cheapest level. That company eventually claims bankruptcy. But Charlie Band doesn't quit. He just keeps doing it. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's, like, wrong-headedness on his part. Like, someone needs to put a hand on his shoulder and say, like please stop. Like, you've done it long enough. You have such a crazy catalog of movies. I find it very touching to hear this because I always just assumed that Charlie Band was kind of a cynical, you know, huckster, you know, like a David F. Friedman type. Since like 2012, Charlie Band does a monthly video where he like sells to you all the great stuff that's coming out of Full Moon. (laughs) Now, I mean, it's undeniable that there's a level of hucksterism there. Like he's often selling the sizzle like, hey man, you like Puppet Master? We made a film just to sell action figures. We need some revenue. And the movie's real boring. Probably directed by David Dakota. (laughs) And like, there's a betrayal there, I feel. Maybe if you were a fan, like, like, why are you giving me this movie? But at the same time, it's like, he needs to make product. He needs to put something out. And this is the way and that he knows how to do it. Mm. Uh, I mean, like, Charlie Band, like, another thing that made me, like, really love the idea of what he's doing is that, like, he created a studio. He had, like, an in-house effects team. He, like, 
made a little bar where people could like go and hang out and talk about movies. And he was doing it all in this one place. I'm like, that's the dream as a filmmaker. This idea that you have like a family and you're working with someone, you're doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, did he pay all his bills on time? Ooh, according to people like Brian Usna, who hates <laughs> his guts, no. Um, did he promise stuff and not deliver? Supposedly all the time. But how could someone exist this long without doing those things? <laughs> like, I haven't worked with him. I'm sure if I had, I would have been like, ah, how could he do this to me? Charlie, shoot me an email. Love to direct another Puppet Master film. I can shoot it in a warehouse somewhere. Uh, but I haven't. So I'm allowed to like be entertained by this stuff, I feel, mm-hmm. in a way that like I was burned when I first started watching Full Moon films because I was like, what? Like, what is this? Like, you watch Retro Puppet Master, no one likes that movie. <laughs> Not even his director, David Dakota. But, like, he kept making movies after that. And, like, some of them are fun, some of them are not. And that, that like, tenacity and this idea of, like, well, I'm just going to keep going. And the, the fact that he said, like, when he started Full Moon, we're going to make 200 movies. I said 2000 last week. I was incorrect. <laughs> Before the year 2000, there's, like, a drive there that is not related to making money. You don't make 200 movies because you want to be a millionaire. You make them because you have to make huh. them. Because you either have like attention deficit disorder and you're like, I need stuff coming in. Or it's like, I feel just passionate about this stuff and I want to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's like amazing to me. But, you know, they still keep making fun movies because I know, Will, you watch Ginger Dead Man 2. I think this is a good transition point yeah. from what you were saying because Ginger Dead Man 2... Passion of the Crust. Ginger Dead Man 2, Passion of the Crust from 2008 is uh, a comedy basically about the making of a film at a full moon-like studio. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fans of Roger Corman will know of Joe Dante's film Hollywood Boulevard. This is the equivalent to that. And it was shot in five days, mm-hmm. obviously extremely cheaply, and is full of uh, little Easter eggs and homages, not only to the full moon catalog, but also to other films from exploitation past. Like, like in the first 10 minutes, you spotted a... Orgy of the Dead reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, with uh, they're shooting a movie and the guy's throwing gold on a woman going, more gold, more <laughs> gold, it pleasures me. Like Criswell did in Orgy of the Dead. Wow, that's like a real deep cut too. Like That's not like a Plan 9 joke. Like no. an Orgy of the Dead joke, that's for the diehard. The movie takes place at Cheatham Pictures uh, <laughs> on the set of... A a, uh, a film in the Tiny Terror series, so basically Puppet Master. Yeah, and they just make fun of it where they like introduce a bunch of like shitty puppets, including one that's just a dildo with yeah. like a beard. Cheatham Pictures is being run by this guy who is the son of the guy who founded it, and he <laughs> wants to carry on his father's legacy making genre films, mm-hmm. uh, but unfortunately he doesn't have any talent, and he doesn't have any money, and somebody says to him, why are we making ten movies when we could just make one good one? <laughs> yeah, and, and he doesn't even have an answer for them. He's like, we just gotta keep doing it, eventually we'll hit on gold. Yeah, uh, it's like, well, you know, if we don't cut some of these movies, we may not even be able to make movies anymore, mm-hmm. but never mind, they gotta keep going. There's a subplot with uh, a boy who is dying from cancer who comes from the Make-A-Wish Foundation to tour the studio uh, and he meets uh, a former Scream Queen who's, who works at the studio now, played by a real-life former Scream Queen, Michelle Bauer, mm-hmm. from Evil Tunes. Yep. Oh. <laughs> the Ter- Fredo and Ray classic. Uh, but while all this is going on, the Ginger Dead Man, who is a gingerbread cookie... Who, uh, you don't have to see the first one, they sum it up right from the beginning, was originally voiced by Gary Busey. <laughs> In this one, he's voiced by special effects guy John Carl Buechler, the director of the first Troll, did a bunch of uh, Empire special effects and also appears in the movie as, I believe, the director of the film, the big bearded guy. So he's going around, you know, killing people and he basically has the voice and personality of Chucky the doll. Mm-hmm. Lots of bad, like, uh, politically incorrect comedy. The other villain of the piece is a disgruntled online film critic <laughs> who writes for a horror website. <laughs> who is really just jealous that he's not employed at Cheatham Studios and he could make a movie, but no, he comes to the, and he wants to blow up the studio. And as Cheatham says himself, he's like, why would people keep buying these movies and watching them if all they're going to say is that they're disappointed by them? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense to me. This movie is 71 minutes long. Mm. Perfect length. The perfect length. I enjoyed this movie. I really like this movie. It has a, a, a real fun spirit to it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the director took a pseudonym on the film and he later said that, like, he kind of regrets that, but he realized he was making a ginger dead a man sequel where at the end they crucify the ginger dead man so he didn't know how this was going to look on a cv but i think that like 
A lot of stuff happens. It has a real sense of humor about what it's doing. Uh, David Dakota appears in the film. As himself. Shooting a tidy whitey picture. <laughs> and he has um, a line that was actually stolen from Albert Band, Charlie Band's father, where an actor went, so do you want me to change anything? Was that good? And then uh, Albert Band or David Dakota in this film looks at the cinematographer and goes, was it in focus? And the cinematographer goes, yes. And then he turns to the actor and goes, beautiful it was perfect <laughs> and the cancer kid when he sees him says oh it's david dakota he's well known for the barely veiled homoeroticism of his films <laughs> oh and david dakota was introduced reading a newspaper while a scene is being shot ah that's beautiful that's yeah. the good stuff yeah so i also like this movie because like the filmmakers kind of know their place in the great lineage of b movie mm-hmm. making you know the opening credits play with, with a lot of posters mm-hmm. of old b movies like the man from planet Acts the brain leeches shotgun wedding is yeah. in there uh so i appreciate that i feel like most b filmmakers probably don't think a lot about their place in that grand historical mm. uh, continuum and this kind of acknowledgement of what full moon is it's something that charlie ban has always had throughout his career like i talked about the fan club and people being aware of a brand like oh it's a full moon film i should check it out charlie ban started the thing where at the end of his tapes um he would put a little 20 to 30 minute making of of the movie that you just watched. Now, sometimes they're just purely promotional, but other times they're actually like a look into how something like Subspecies, which was the first film that shot at the Charlie Band funded Romanian studios a year after the fall of communism, mm-hmm. uh, how difficult it was and how tough it was to get this movie to the screen. Like, that's important. And, you know, at first I was suspicious where I was like, hmm, was he shooting these video zone just because he wanted to pad out the running time to 90 minutes? So... Uh, he wouldn't have to like convince distributors that his films were too short. And in fact, he had to convince the distributor to add time to the tapes to be able to add this video <laughs> zone. And I love that. I mean, you can look at it and go, well, it's also an advertising tool for Full Moon Films. And I'm like, yes, it is. But like the idea of behind the scenes stuff and just some viewer at home being able to see that, that like opens a world that movies just don't. It's letting you in being like, hey, you're part of the family. Like, look how this stuff happens and getting you involved in a way that I feel like that's why Full Moon label has fans to this day. Because like, if we're going to talk about cheap movies, oh man, Full Moon has just been losing money as it goes, shooting times, getting smaller and smaller. There's nowhere for their movies to appear. The story goes that... (laughs) Charlie Band made a deal with Redbox because whoever was in charge of getting movies for the service just loved Full Moon. And they funded like really cheap films that would be shot in five days. And then eventually Charlie Band went, well, I want to make this Ginger Dead versus Evil Bong film. (laughs) And the guy was like, well, we don't want this. Like, we're not going to fund it. And Charlie Band's like, well, I'm going to make it anyway. (laughs) And it's like this idea that like, like Charlie Band, he's a huckster. He'll rip stuff off. He'll like use titles and other stuff. He'll do the worst thing, which is he takes movies and repackages them mm-hmm. in like best of clips. I hate that. But I mean, if it makes him money, but he couldn't stop himself from making another Evil Bong film. He's like, <laughs> I just want to make Evil Bong, a series that it has to have fans because there's seven of them. I've never met any of them, but I am planning uh, with a good friend, Andrew Barr, of watching all of them in one day. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. But like, it's your life, man. This dedication from Charles Band of just like continuing to do stuff. Like he's going to make movies until he dies. Like he's not going to do any other career. He's just going to keep doing this, selling stuff online and just doing these properties and making new movies. And I think that's amazing. Like if you don't like it, if you think it's a ripoff, don't watch them. Like, it's that easy. Like, you're not seeing commercials from them. They're not hogging, like, video store shelves. Like, you just have to ignore it. And you can just continue to let him do what he does. All right, I will ignore them then. (laughs) But, like, he still has so much stuff, like, around the video era, like the Stuart Gordon films. Ted Niccolo, who directed a bunch of films. Most people know him from Terror Vision. He was known as, like, one of the best, like, filmmakers. And I kind of skipped over it, but, like, Charlie Band at one point started a bunch of sub-labels. He started one that made only urban i'm putting that in air quotes we know what that means uh films but like it was all films with black actors and a lot of them had black directors and like it could be seen as like an exploitative thing but that's also giving an opportunity to these films like i watched one yesterday called the vault which is like a shot on video kind of like haunted house evil dead riff that's all black actors Hmm. and it's like you just you don't see that 
and like that was something novel that he was doing and obviously money ran out he had to stop doing that <laughs> but for him to like pitch that and to make those movies and to release one quarterly like that's amazing mm-hmm. he even did like giant monster movies uh i watched one craw the sea monster that is super fun like why would you make a giant monster movie like that is a money losing proposition but the fact that he did it and he created a sub-label monster island entertainment it's just amazing to me now i'm sure you could again say like well we're just doing it to rip off this thing and to make money sure he was but it he was doing it in a way which is like why would you do this like it costs so much money and the film craw is tons of fun like i love it i would recommend it if you're a giant monster movie fan go check that film out the heroes of the film are a super smart biker and a waitress at a restaurant so like and you're not gonna see that anywhere else well, Justin, I like how much you like him, and you've yeah. almost got me sold. <laughs> I almost got you sold. Well, I should recommend some films that yeah. I would definitely like tell people to check out if you want Full Moon. Uh, so Stuart Gordon films are definitely go-tos. Some people that were interviewed uh, about Full Moon say that Stuart Gordon kind of had like whatever he wanted to do. So I don't know how like maybe he had more opportunities to make good movies, more resources. But Stuart Gordon himself says that like he didn't have time, he didn't have any money. Uh, his Pit in the Pendulum, which stars Lance Henriksen, tons of fun. Castle Freak is great. And Stuart Gordon made a bunch for Empire Pictures as well, like Robot Jocks, which I really like. One of the ones that people don't talk about uh, that came out of Full Moon is called Dark Angel The Ascent. And that I would describe it as Splash meets Miss 45, where a kind of clueless demoness in hell escapes to the real world. And then she realizes that humanity is evil. And as she's falling in love with a doctor, she also goes out and murders uh, evildoers out in the street. It's very, like, beautifully shot, like almost all Full Moon films, because they had, like, Mac Alberg, who was, like, a very professional cinematographer. They had a lot of, like... Uh, Romanian and Italian cinematographer. So all the movies look amazing. And this one specifically. And it's just fun. It's a small movie. It ends in a way where you're like, ah, that's it. But it's like, when you watch a Full Moon film, eventually you realize like, oh, I want to take these attributes from it. And not expect always like the full experience like when you watch exploitation films like you're not gonna go like ah, this will make me cry this will make me laugh it'll make me love the characters you just have to figure out specific things that you like about it I would definitely recommend the Puppet Master 3 Toulon's Revenge if you want to start a Puppet Master movie start there it's a prequel so it doesn't even matter you don't have to have seen the other ones I saw a kids film because Full Moon also got into kids films under the label Moonbeam Entertainment uh, or Pulse Pounders they keep changing their name probably for tax reasons uh, there's one called Spoon Spooky Town, also known as Phantom Town, that was directed by Jeff Burr, a filmmaker I really like. And that one is great because it's a bunch of kids that end up in this western town at night because their parents have disappeared and they end up facing off against like this like weird Lovecraftian like the whole town is alive you take a knife and if you cut into anything it'll bleed and it has the greatest thing in kids film which is they're in actual danger and the kids are smart and proactive and it's not afraid to be scary. Which, like, a lot of kids' films, like, they'll play it as a joke. And, like, this film plays it pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. So, Spooky Town, Puppet Master 3, Dark Angel, The Ascent, and uh, Castle Freak. If you want to start in Full Moon, and then Ginger Dead Man 2, which is, like, the goofier version of that. Do all of those. Uh, I can't speak to films like Killjoy, about a killer clown. Uh, there's a lot of films in that series. But the last three were all shot in about two days each. So, you know... You get what's on the tin. What about a film that's very important to you, Laser Blast? So Laser Blast, not a full moon film. Uh, It was an empire picture by Charles Band. Uh, This is a film that... I always forget that it's a it's essentially a slasher film <laughs> where a teenager, and I say that loosely, looks like a 40-year-old man, uh, finds a laser in the desert and then turns into a monster and starts killing people. And he gets kind of pushed around at school yeah. by such bullies as Eddie Deason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, it's a good uh, example of like what Charlie Band was doing because it has Dave Allen stop motion effects, great aliens, right. like claymation aliens. The only good thing about the movie. Uh, the film is very bare, doesn't have much of a plot. Uh, the director, who was a stunt guy and only made Laser Blast, said, hey, I got to blow up a lot of stuff in that movie. That's all he remembered about the picture when asked about it. You know, I was such a huge Mystery Science Theater fan when I was in middle school that, you know, the the only way to see Mystery Science Theater was on VHS tapes. That mm-hmm. you, they could buy the intro 
internet didn't didn't have it all yet and and there were only so many episodes on vhs so i would sometimes seek out movies that i know, knew they had done <laughs> and just because i i and i would like fantasize in my head what the riffs were <laughs> and so that's how i saw laser blast <laughs> yeah i mean laser blast it actually just got a new blu-ray release and it looks amazing you made a joke that it's antonioni-esque <laughs> it's set in the desert and it's very slowly paced but when you get it in widescreen immaculate it looks even more like a weird <laughs> art film where a monster boy like blows up star wars signs yeah uh, and that film has what i mean if i'm gonna recommend like physical media from full moon it's because they have commentaries on it and they're amazing because like that one has charlie band and his brother richard band who did the scores of all the full moon films like all full moon films have very i don't want to say similar score but the same theme because they're all done by one guy well if i can recommend the old dvd of laser blast it has trailers for a number of empire pictures films including beach babes from beyond which had boobs in it yes uh, you said it was a very important film for you as a kid the trailer was yeah because it had boobs <laughs> yeah i mean charlie band like when asked about movies he he's not very um I don't want to say that he's not eloquent, but he's like, you know, I like fantasy. I like sci-fi. I like horror. I like women, those women getting naked. Like those are all like important stuff for him. He's not even a big gore guy either. Cause like he has a much like more innocent look at movies and reading about full moon. A lot of the filmmakers that worked for him kind of look down on that stuff, which is a bit of a bummer. It feels rip offy at times. Mm-hmm. And all these movies, you can watch them by getting like a $6 subscription to uh, Full Moon Streaming, where every Full Moon film, you can find it on there. If it's been remastered, the remastered version will be on there. Um, Another one that I recommend is Shrieker, which is a slasher film that was shot in, I believe, four days by David Dakota. And the gimmick was he wanted to make a slasher film and shoot it in widescreen, which is hilarious because... It went straight to VHS. It never appeared in widescreen, <laughs> but you can finally watch it in widescreen on the website. Before we get to letters on the Patreon this week, guys, have you ever wanted to watch a snuff film? <gasps> well, we didn't, but we did watch <laughs> the famous Japanese guinea pig series, mm-hmm. uh, the notorious series of faux snuff films. It's a Shocktober special. And you can find out all about them and find out which famous Hollywood star reported them to the FBI erroneously. <laughs> And uh, shockingly, me and Will had never seen them before. So we're watching them for the first time. First time watched. (laughs) Now, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have some letters. The first letter is from someone that asked us to identify a movie. Uh, It's from Chris Woodward. And he said, so all I remember is that it's set in a high school prom or reunion and people start dying. I vividly recall one guy with long Rapunzel-like ponytail of hair who ends up hanged from the rafters. I want to say it's from the 80s. That's basically all I can remember. Any help you'd give would be much appreciated. I have no idea what this movie is. But hey, important cinema nation, let us know. Do you know what that is? Give us an email. I'm sure that Chris would very much appreciate it. Our second letter is from Graham Blackaby, and he goes, Hey, Justin Will, I always love your Shocktober episodes. <laughs> They're some of my absolute favorites. I want to make a suggestion for a possible episode or Patreon, the film-adjacent career of Joe Bob Briggs. You've probably heard of him, but... If not, he was a late-night cable host who was kind of a cowboy Elvira. I've always been fascinated by increasingly dated TV figures like that, and he's more interesting than most. He tends to do a lot of things, off-topic rants. In fact, he's still doing them on his show for the horror streaming service Shudder. He does a bizarre ramble comedy riff on the NFL kneeling protest for about 10 minutes in his introduction to Hellraiser, all while slouch over in a lazy boy chair. I think he's exactly the kind of cultural artifact that Will in particular would enjoy, and I can't see any other podcast on earth covering him so if you think there's something there i'd love to hear it well first of all i'm have some trepidation about what joe bob briggs might have to say about the nfl kneeling protest yeah joe bob briggs uh his politics not very good no if you've seen his columns on tacky magazine yeah and and he seems to have stepped back from that since donald trump was elected and things went bad well also his career has gotten a bit of a a jolt with mm-hmm. Shutter getting behind him as well. So maybe he he doesn't want to show his uh, farther right wing side as much anymore. I, could Joe Bob Briggs be a Patreon episode? Uh, I don't know. Might not. Is there uh, enough there? I 
don't have that much experience with him growing up in yeah. ways that like a lot of people had on like he had Monster Vision, a show where he hosted right. movies. He used to review stuff on, I believe, DVD talk. Mm-hmm. So I remember reading his reviews there because it'd be like the thing that he made famous, which is there's this many dead people. There's this many breasts. There's this many et cetera, et cetera. Joe Bob says, check it out. Yeah, exactly. Well, when I was a teenager, I had his two books, Profoundly Disturbing and Profoundly Erotic, which were, you know, books where he talked about the production history of, mm. you know, a number of movies, whether it's uh, Deep Throat or Night of the Living Dead or Drunken Master, stuff like that and he didn't really write it in that joe bob style he Mm -hmm. wrote it it in like a pretty sober analytical way and i really liked those books and about a year ago i read joe bob goes to the drive-in which was a collection of his newspaper columns from the early 80s joe bob briggs in actuality is a critic named john bloom from the south he put on this guise, this uh, cowboy hat wearing trailer park character to review drive in movies. Mm-hmm. And nobody was really reviewing drive in movies at that time. And in a respectful way, like mm-hmm. he still did it in like a slangy, like, mm-hmm. ah, you know, we're just hanging out and having fun. But he obviously like thought a lot about these movies and genuinely enjoyed them as opposed to just shitting on them. And often his columns, like he would create a whole fictional world in his columns of all his like redneck friends and Mm. all that. I I think his columns are very fun and they're an interesting historical artifact, like just by virtue of the fact that not a lot of people were writing about these movies in a respectful way. He was a towering figure at that point because he was doing it first in a way that wasn't making fun of them. Like, Like the horror hosts a lot of the time they were maybe a little bit like disingenuous and like, mm-hmm. this is a lark, it's a joke, what we're about mm-hmm. to watch. And Joe Bob Briggs like liked these things, mm-hmm. which was, whoa, that's refreshing. And so he parlayed that into a career on cable with his Monster Vision show. And he also has done a lot of DVD commentaries, which I Very think good are ones. great. Like the one on I Spit on Your Grave is famous as like, oh, you know, if you don't like I Spit on Your Grave, you should still listen to the Joe Bob's commentary mm-hmm. on it. Yeah, I agree. And also he did a lot of commentaries on the Ray Dennis Steckler movies, like Blood Shack, The Incredibly Strange Creatures, uh, which are also really fun commentaries. And Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter the william bodine classic he even did one on a uh, roberta finley film as well um what, blood what? sisters blood sisters yeah. that's right yeah and and also joe bob briggs has an interesting and very small acting career you may remember him in casino yes that's right he, he's the slot machine guy who because robert de niro fires him that ends up triggering de niro's downfall <laughs> that's you remember, right. you remember that? i remember that so yeah. so there are two great scenes in casino of Robert De Niro arguing with Joe Bob Briggs. <laughs> and I highly recommend rewatching the whole movie just for that. And Joe Bob Briggs has appeared in little cameos here and there. He's like... He's in Face Off. Yeah, he's in uh, The Stand, the yeah. McGarris mini uh, series. He's in a bunch of like little things, but he will always be famous as the guy in Casino. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm very firmly pro Joe Bob Briggs. Mm-hmm. Not pro his politics. No, but you know, he can't be perfect. Never accuse me of, of purity politics <laughs> because I embrace Joe Bob Briggs. I do love the idea of him coming back and hosting like movie marathons Mm -hmm. because while that may be like a nostalgic thing of like people who loved them back in the day want to see him again it may also get him new viewers of something that like just doesn't really happen in that form anymore Mm -hmm. where it's like 12 solid hours or even just like a block of a movie that's hosted by this guy like Mm -hmm. that's cool i like that bring it back Justin and Will, we're uh, open for bookings. Just send us an email and uh, we will also host your thing on public access TV. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Next week, we're going to be doing Wes Craven. Director of Scream, Last House on the Left, Nightmare on Elm Street. One of the real name brand horror directors, Vampire in Brooklyn. (laughs) Uh, Serpent in the Rainbow, uh, People Under the Stairs. Music of the Heart. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Director who you can literally point at and go, he started three distinct horror trends by one movie that he made. Last House on the Left, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Scream all laid templates, essentially, for the decade that would follow. And yet, I'm not that enthusiastic about him. No! Oh, I'm very enthusiastic about Craven. I like him well enough, but, you know, he's a journeyman. He, I, mm, I don't think so. You don't think so? No, I don't think so. All right. I mean, one of his one auteurist obsessions, he loves traps. He loves them. All of his movies, even Nightmare on Elm Street, traps. What does that mean psychologically? Well, I don't know. We're going to have to watch a bunch of his movies to find out. I think he's a director that everybody knows... But, like, he doesn't have fans like John Carpenter has Mm -hmm. or that George Romero has. And that's really interesting to me. So we're going to explore Wes Craven's filmography. We're going to be doing Last House on the Left, uh, Scream, 
probably Vampire in Brooklyn. Yeah, we uh, want to watch one of his bad ones. And we're not going to watch any of the Nightmare on Elm Street films or really discuss them too much, just because we're going to save that at some point. We'll do a franchise episode just on those movies. Mm-hmm. So until next week, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I think I forgot to say in the episode, but you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com, Mr. Band. I'm just waiting by the inbox, you know. If you have a, you know, $2,000 to make a movie, I'm there. Hire but- Justin to make a movie, for God's sake. <laughs> the Asylum wouldn't even do it. I mean, if you've let David Dakota make 500 movies, you can <laughs> let Justin make one. But that's the thing that David Dakota can do, right? Is that he can deliver things on time, on money, and you have a movie. So can you, possibly, <laughs> possibly I think. Yeah. yeah. So I want to start doing something new in the back matter, which is actually recommending stuff that me and will consume because we watch and read so much stuff that i would really like to share you know some of the littler things which aren't getting that much press like uh recently i got a copy of grim magazine which is a horror centric mag that's published a few times a year uh, out of toronto ontario and it's all written by women and uh, LGBTQ uh, writers, and that it mostly deals with women-centric themes. And it's a mixture of like academic stuff, interviews, stuff you would know, or deep cuts. And it's like these kind of magazines that I feel need support. So you can buy it online, you can buy a digital copy for like five bucks, or you can buy a print copy for $15. And if you're getting like an actual print copy, they're really slick. They don't go the um, cheap like print-on-demand uh, way. It's full color, and you can actually get Grimm by going to anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. Speaking of recommendations, Will, you have one. I just revisited a movie called Mr. Vampire 1992, which is the last of the beloved Hong Kong hopping vampire series. Uh, not very good. I was hoping to love it this time, but mm-hmm. uh, alas, no. But uh, it led me to flipping through this book by Paul Fonaroff called At the Hong Kong Movies, 600 Reviews from 1988 Till the Handover. Wait, who is Paul Fonaroff? Paul Fonaroff was a guaylo, mm-hmm. that is a white guy who lived in Hong white Kong. White devil. And reviewed movies for the, I don't know, the South China Post or whatever mm-hmm. it was. Uh, you know, during the time of this golden age of Hong Kong films. And it, it was all collected into this book, which I have and which Justin has, uh, that was widely available at like Chapters Indigos and Barnes and Nobles and stuff. But there's something very special about this writer. And it's that he doesn't like Hong Kong movies very much. No, he's always complaining whether it's uh, your hard boileds or your drunken master twos or any of the classics. He's saying, where's the plot? <laughs> And or or like here he's talking about Happy Together, the Wong Kar Wai film. He says, if there's one director who inspires passionate debate on the part of filmgoers and critics alike, it is Wong Kar Wai, the darling of Quentin Tarantino and the international festival circuit. His films personify hipness. It is extremely uncool to dispute his anointment by the in crowd as the reigning genius of Hong Kong cinema. Beautifully packaged, the films are long on style but short on substance. <laughs> So he's also complaining, like his big bugaboo is that these movies don't have plots. He's a normcore critic then. Yeah. And he, movies are one thing for him. And if they don't fit into those boxes and it's like useless, it's one negative review after another of this book. And, and, you know, I, I read it with such fascination because, you know, why would he, why would he watch these movies? But also this book is interesting because it's a primary source document. Like he was actually there reviewing these movies as they came out. He acts in films like Troy Hark's Once Upon a time in china as just like the bad white guy the cover of this book has pictures of him on various movie sets like uh, here he is with jackie chan and uh here he is with uh, chow yun fat and there's there is wong kar wai you know just as uh, as extras in their movies like he was the english guy reviewing hong kong films and he disliked them and that like brings me to the question it's hilarious like in that moment how much of an impact this one person can have on how like but it's also interesting for people like us who like hong kong films because you know all the reviews are printed in chronological order mm-hmm. and if you read them you can kind of follow people's careers as they're going along like you know he reviews all the Samo Hung movies that came out at that time and you can see Samo's career decline for and instance because we're not like um, Chinese speakers or readers this is like a look into what it was like at that moment when these films came out. Yeah, and so there are classics in there and there are lots of just very ordinary movies that mm-hmm. you that don't get remembered or don't get talked about. It's just an interesting thing and I wish it were better. <laughs> yeah, I do too. But like, as long as you go to it knowing the context around it, that's what gives it value. Mm-hmm. And that's why I would recommend it because like, 
it's something so specific. Like you can find books or reviews written at the time that like North American movies came out, but Hong Kong ones, that's so much rarer. 